As Zika virus continues its spread through the Americas, pressure has mounted to develop a vaccine against it. And although experience with related flavor viruses suggests that the development of a safe and effective vaccine should be feasible, investigators face a number of challenges specific to Zika virus and its sequelae. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Fauci has co-authored a perspective article about approaches to developing a Zika vaccine. Dr. Fauci, in your article, you describe potential strategies for conducting clinical trials of such vaccines. What's the current state of vaccine development? Who's working on the candidates, and how close are they to conducting those trials? Okay, so what we have right now with Zika is a situation where we have about a half a dozen candidates at different stages of development, from preclinical to two candidates that have already gone into phase one trial for safety and to determine if it induces the kind of response that you might predict would be protective. They're an interesting array. They're using multiple different vaccine platforms. There are some that are being done by the NIH almost exclusively, some being done by companies exclusively, some being done by the NIH in collaboration with pharmaceutical companies, as well as with an agency at HHS called BOTR for the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority that helps with the advanced development. So the bottom line of all of that is that there are a number of candidates. So let me just update you on two that have already gone from preclinical into phase one testing. It happens that both of these are DNA vaccines, namely the platform is a DNA plasmid into which has been inserted the gene of a particular protein of the Zika virus. And that has started in the beginning of August. The NIH trial started on August the 2nd, a trial by Inovio. The company Inovio started a few days before, and they're in the process now of asking the question, is it in fact safe and does it induce the kind of response that you hope would be protective? Phase one trials out of necessity, since they're fundamentally safety trials, are small in number. The NIH trial has 80 individuals that are normal volunteers between 18 and 35 that will be tested here at the NIH in Bethesda, at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, and at Emory University in Atlanta. We hope to get everything taken care of vis-a-vis the enrollment and the initial observations by the end of 2016, hopefully by the end of November, the beginning of December. And then the plan is to smoothly transition into a much larger efficacy trial that will be done in multiple sites, 20 or more sites, in areas where there's active Zika transmission. And that's very important because in order to determine if it works, namely, is this an efficacious vaccine, you have to do it in an area where there's active transmission going on. And we hope to start that in the first month or two of 2017, January or February of 2017. Behind these are other candidates that will start a little bit later. For example, There's a particle-inactivated Zika vaccine that will go into phase one trials probably at the end of October, and there's a live attenuated vaccine similar to the dengue vaccines that have been made that will go into trial as we enter into 2017. So they're kind of staggered temporally. That doesn't mean that the best one is the first one, but there are a lot of shots on goal, as it were here, as you'd expect to do when you're trying to get an effective vaccine. So how does this effort compare with what was done against Ebola? Are we more prepared this time around to act quickly? Well, 
I would think so. We jumped on this right away. When I say we, I mean the field, the NIH, but also companies and other agencies. The difference is that we have made successful vaccines against a number of flaviviruses. Some of them have been commercialized, others not. For example, the yellow fever, which is a flavivirus, is one of the more successful, effective vaccines that we have. We have vaccines against dengue, a variable degree of efficacy, a number of candidates, at least one of which has been already approved by multiple countries and a couple of other candidates that are in advanced clinical trial. We actually started a live attenuated quadrivalent dengue vaccine trial in Brazil several months ago, and it's in the phase three trial. So the idea of developing a vaccine for a flavivirus is not a new thing for the biomedical research and vaccinology community. Whereas when you were dealing with Ebola, although we had done a number of experiments in animal models, in fact, we had been working for over a decade in Ebola work. And to proceed with Ebola vaccine trials, I think we did it pretty quickly. We had a couple of platforms that we used. One was a VSV vector. The other one was an adeno vector. We actually, I think, moved along quickly. And as we all know, the epidemic, because of good public health practices, essentially died out by itself, which was a very good thing. So now we're doing studies to determine the optimum degree of immunogenicity and safety. That's a bit different than what we're talking about with Zika, because Zika is in a family of viruses that we have a lot of experience with. So looking at Zika, how do you weigh the importance of developing a vaccine against other prevention strategies, mosquito control, barrier protection during sex, that sort of thing? Where should governments be focusing their resources? Well, I think on both. If one looks at the immediate intervention that one has to address the ongoing Zika issue, whether it's in Brazil, which has naturally died down now in their winter, it peaked during their summer, which was January and February. We're having a major outbreak in Puerto Rico. We're having cases that continue to prop up in Florida. So clearly what we need to do to address that problem is mosquito control, be that cleaning up the environment of still water so they can't breathe, directly attacking the mosquito by larvicides and insecticides that are delivered either by backpack spraying, truck spraying, or even as we're seeing in Florida, in some areas of Florida, by aerial spraying. That's clearly the thing that you do here and now. In the long range, vaccine becomes a very important intervention, and it will be important, relatively speaking, to a greater or lesser degree, depending upon how this particular infection, how Zika settles in endemicity in a particular area. For example, if you have a few cases, handfuls of cases, we now have over 70 cases in Florida, and it just dies down and essentially disappears, When we develop a vaccine that we hope will be safe and effective, I would not see a vaccine being used universally in the continental United States. However, if you have a situation in South America, one or more of South American countries, or even in Puerto Rico, where similar to dengue, you have an outbreak, but you also have a chronic degree of persistent infection in society, given what we know about the birth defects, you clearly will want to protect women of childbearing age. And the way that you do that, by the time a person gets pregnant and gets vaccinated during their pregnancy, you may have already missed the window of opportunity of protection. 
So what one can do is to vaccinate children before they become of childbearing age, both boys and girls. And if you think historically in the United States and elsewhere, this is exactly what happened in the 1960s when we were faced with the situation of congenital rubella syndrome. Rubella similar to Zika was a relatively and is a relatively mild infection. However, it can be devastating if a woman gets infected during pregnancy and hence the congenital rubella syndrome, which included microcephaly and included deafness, hearing abnormalities, visual abnormalities, intellectual compensation. So what happened and what did happen, and we all know that now, is that rubella vaccination has become an important part of the vaccination menu for children. And it protects them so that when they become of childbearing age, you don't have the problem. And in essence, congenital rubella syndrome has essentially disappeared. It is conceivable that that could happen in some countries with Zika if it settles in as an endemic infection. So there's going to be a lot of different uses for Zika vaccines. It could be used for travel. For example, if someone doesn't live in a Zika endemic area, but they are of childbearing age or might even be pregnant or thinking of being pregnant, you might want to vaccinate that person. But as a universal vaccine for the country, I believe it will only be for those countries in which you have chronicity of Zika that's essentially persistent at a low level. In your article, you talk about two non-traditional strategies for evaluating potential vaccines. One involves human challenge studies and one involves animal models. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of those two approaches? Well, the advantage of any challenge, be it in an animal model or a human challenge, is that you have a very controlled situation and you can determine precisely what the correlate of immunity that is associated with protection or not. You could determine what the right dose to get that level of immunity or not. So it can really cut down on time a lot. And you could also, particularly when you're dealing with an animal model, when you're in a situation in which you don't have enough infections in the community, but you do have the capability of doing a large safety study and an immunogenicity study, you could do what's called bridging, namely taking the circumstance which you know protects an animal to a challenge and correlate the immune response that's associated with that protection with the kind of immune response that you get in a large number of normal humans that might not be at risk for getting infection because there's no infection in the community. So the animal model becomes important when you don't have enough infections to be able to get an efficacy signal. I might make a comment about human challenge studies. You have to be careful when you're dealing with this, and that's the reason why human challenge studies with Zika, since there are still some unknowns with Zika, need to be subject to careful ethical consideration and open, transparent discussion as to the pros and cons of doing that. I think it's something that certainly is conceivable and feasible to do, but it needs to be done with care and addressing any ethical issues that might come up. So moving beyond these early studies to, let's say, a successful vaccine, in a related perspective article, Thomas and colleagues talk about the challenges that are involved in advancing from small-scale manufacturing a vaccine to the levels of production that would be required to deploy it. For Zika, how big a problem do you think that might be? I think that's unknown right now. I think that's an excellent question because right now we are still in the evolving state. For example, here are some of the unknowns. We know that Zika was identified in 1947. The first human cases were seen in Nigeria and Africa in 1952. 
We don't know the level of infection, whether there were outbreaks or not, or whether there's a degree of background immunity against Zika virus in places like Africa and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Those are unknowns that we have to do some screening to figure out exactly what the history of that is. Because right now, you know, we're starting to see an alarming number of cases in Singapore. And then the cases in Singapore could spill over into Malaysia. So even though we're talking about the Americas now, it is quite possible that we could be dealing with a problem that goes well beyond the Western Hemisphere and well beyond the Americas. These are things we just need to keep an eye out. So the answer to your question is, we don't know the extent of the production capability that we might need or not, because we don't know exactly what the demands are going to be. And finally, how has vaccine development been affected by the battle that's going on in Congress over Zika funding? What's going to happen with that? Well, this is really very frustrating because given the urgency of the situation, we at the NIH with our vaccine development, the CDC with their mosquito control and interacting with the local and state health agencies have been really very frustrated because we've had to move money from accounts that have nothing to do with Zika. For example, to start off on the vaccine work and even on the fundamental basic research with Zika, I had to take money that I thought I was borrowing and would be able to pay back. I had to take it from other accounts. Malaria, tuberculosis, pandemic flu. Then as we started to develop the vaccines in the preclinical and phase one, we had to tap into money that the secretary gave us from Ebola unexpended accounts that came from the CDC and USAID. And then when we ran out of that money, Secretary Burwell had to use her transfer authority, which means taking money from other institutes, taking money from cancer, heart disease, diabetes, mental health, in order to have us prepare for the phase two trial. This is very destructive to the biomedical research endeavor. And right now, as we come to the end of the 2016 fiscal year, which ends on September the 30th, if we don't get included in the 2017 budget money to continue, we're going to have to dramatically slow down and in some cases even stop what we're doing, which would really, I think, be unconscionable to have to do that. Thank you, Dr. Fauci.